This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 8th of October, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wongle people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the international issues that are causing problems for the federal government. And Scott Morrison goes on the attack in the West and in the North, but it might not be his wisest move. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, contestant number 458 in the Squid Games. So, David, we've received another one-star rating for our podcast, and it's not all bad news. Overall, we do get a lot of supportive commentary, and we do have an average rating of 4.2 out of 5. We usually get criticised for being too left-wing, and this time we've been accused of not being left-wing enough, so it just goes to show that you can't please everyone. Should we give it up right now and go away, or like Gough Whitlam once said, just crash through or crash? All right, look, let's keep going. 4.2 is an excellent rating, and I do love hearing the feedback from everyone. If someone says we're too left-wing and someone else says we're not left-wing enough, we must be somewhere in the middle, and that must be about right. So I think it's really good. Please keep your reviews coming. We like positive reviews, but if you've got a concern or a question or you think we've got something wrong, let us know and we'll discuss it or we'll fix it or we'll let it stand, depending on what it is. But thanks to all our listeners for listening. And that's the main thing. And thank you to those new Patreon supporters. Thank you for signing up. If you want some more information about our Patreon account, the details are on our website, newpolitics.com.au. And it's an excellent way to support independent journalism. There's been a range of international issues affecting Australia recently. There was the broken submarine deal with the French government, and that's led to problems for Australia trying to negotiate a free trade deal with the European Union. There's the ongoing issues over climate change in the lead-up to the COP26 Environment Forum in Glasgow later on this month. And the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, decided that now is the best time to go to Taiwan to tell democracies that they need to stand shoulder to shoulder against China. And this is after 18 months of diplomatic problems with China that the Australian government is yet to resolve. Residents in other countries, they don't get to vote in Australian elections and quite often individual international events don't directly influence politics locally. But the accumulation of these issues is becoming a bigger issue overall, especially on climate change and trade. Should the federal government be worried about these developments? I think they should. There's a sense in which the local voter probably doesn't pay too much attention to foreign affairs. Foreign affairs is complex. It's difficult. It seems contradictory. And if you don't keep across it, it is quite a maze of difficulty and complexity that is beyond a lot of people who aren't watching it. I don't think it's beyond a lot of people itself. It takes a little bit of time to have a look. And we're generally not served well by our newspapers in explaining it. But things can affect local voters. If a trade deal goes badly, manufacturers, farmers and anyone else who exports may find themselves without a profitable market. And 
without one to replace it with. We're seeing this in Brexit. In Australia, the China thing is very worrying. It is our largest trade partner. The other large trade partner we need to worry about, of course, is the EU. And uh, he hasn't been popular with France. We'll get back to that in a minute. So I think that it's time that we started looking at things. Now, things are also starting to change in China. There is apparently word that Chairman Xi is about to be replaced in a one of those not quite unprecedented but very rare moves with Chinese leadership. Xi is seen as too warmongering, apparently. That can affect things too. It may improve things. I doubt it will because it's not just prime ministers and presidents and chairmen who speak. It is the public servants. It's the military. It's business. And the tension can go right through. The French submarine deal, that has been a diplomatic disaster. And it was quite explosive news three weeks ago when the news first arrived. And it's been simmering in the background. It's probably not such a big issue within the news cycle at the moment. Scott Morrison does insist that relationships between the Australian government and the French government are improving, even though there's absolutely no evidence that that's the case. And again, I think it's another situation where Scott Morrison is misrepresenting what's actually happening on the ground. The French government and the French community, now overall, like I'm sure that not many people in France are picking up the newspapers and thinking, oh, look at these terrible things that the Australian government has done to us. But still, it's a, it is a big issue. France has been humiliated. The international community is now questioning whether France is the power that it thinks that it might be. And there's other issues that have come out of this. The Trade Minister, Dan Tehan, he's had meetings cancelled with the French government to try and resolve some of these issues. Well, the French Trade Minister refuses to speak to him. They also refuse to speak to Scott Morrison at the moment. But overall, I think there's this sense that these issues will develop into other problems for Australia, especially for the COP26 environment meeting coming up pretty soon. In the past, Australia has been able to obtain favourable deals under the Kyoto Protocol by getting agreement and trade-offs with other countries on other matters, such as trade and friendship deals between those respective countries. And that's the way that these negotiations usually take place. But behind the scenes, the French government is instructing other European Union members to go hard on Australia when it comes to future trade negotiations, because according to the Belgian membership of the European Union, they're saying that Australia is a really bad performer when it comes to climate policy. So within these sort of negotiations, you do need friends in international relationships. You need friends within international negotiations. The United States and the UK, they seem to be the new best friends for the Australian government, but they're not going to support Australia to go against a major US policy to create international deals on climate change. Australia is going to be smacked around at the COP26 climate forum and it's probably wise for Morrison to not go there because he will be absolutely humiliated. Exactly right. He will be humiliated as he is at most of these things. One of the things that prime ministers have to be good at is foreign affairs. Even though there's a foreign affairs minister, it's still a point where the Prime Minister will have to represent Australia to the rest of the world. And he's not a person who can. Paul Keating may have been rambunctious, shall we say, but he never embarrassed Australia. He stood up maybe more forthrightly for Australia than other more temperate personalities might have. But certainly he 
he could sit in and be seen as a person of substance. Bob Hawke was very well liked amongst most of the rest of the world, most of the time. John Howard was seen as a person of substance, a man of his word even. And I know that some of our uh, more left uh, listeners will be snorting in derision at that, but internationally that was absolutely true. (laughs) How he treated the Australian public is discussion for another time. And yet Scott Morrison is not well regarded. He's barely remembered when he's there. He doesn't make an impression. Julia Gillard always made an excellent impression. Kevin Rudd always made an excellent impression. Malcolm Turnbull always made a good impression or an excellent impression. Now, whether you liked them as prime ministers in domestic issues was a totally different thing, but they could sit in a room with foreign dignitaries and not embarrass themselves. We've had two to three prime ministers who couldn't do that. Billy McMahon from 69 to 73, 72, I'm sorry, and Tony Abbott, who at least tried, and Scott Morrison, who seems to not be able to grasp what he's there for. France in itself only does about a billion dollars worth of trade to Australia. They're not a big trading partner. But the EU, of which France is a major part, is our third largest trading partner. And it does uh, 45 or $50 billion worth of trade with Australia. This is a huge knock in the budget if we lose a lot of that. Or if tariffs go up, they're going to scrap any free trade agreement. And that looks like that's gone. And for a prime minister who is essentially a free trader, this is a terrible loss. And as I said, this will have an effect. Manufacturers and farmers and all those people who trade with the EU suddenly have lost a lot of trade. That trickles down, a phrase I don't like to use, but here we are, trickles down into jobs, into expansions, into buildings, into spending, and it has a big impact on the economy. Now, you may be able to find other markets, but not really. Well, I'm not so concerned about that issue of a prime minister or an Australian prime minister embarrassing Australia on the world stage. I'm more concerned about Australians actually being embarrassed about their prime minister, about their local behaviour, whether they do appear on the international stage or national stage or whatever it is. That's the main issue for me. So Tony Abbott was an embarrassment when he went overseas when he was prime minister. And it seems like that's an issue that continues up until today. He's no longer the prime minister, but he did go to Taiwan during the week. The the question of Taiwan, it's a delicate political issue for China. But In a major provocation, the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, he met with the Taiwanese president to use this as a platform to criticise China. He made it very clear that he was there in his capacity as a private citizen. And the issue is that Tony Abbott is not just a private citizen. It's not like you and I can just pick up the phone to the Taiwanese president and start complaining about China. Tony Abbott is a former head of the Australian government. Only 15 countries recognise Taiwan, and it's probably a situation that's best left alone, especially in the context of all of those issues between Australia and China that have been raging over the past 18 months. There's been different trade disputes and tariffs that have been imposed on Australian exports. And this is ever since Morrison called for the World Health Organisation investigation into the origins of coronavirus in China, and the Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, actually blamed blaming China for the onset of coronavirus. So in that context, Tony Abbott going to Taiwan to criticise China, it's a highly inflammatory action and it should have been avoided. 
I do ring the Chinese president all the time to complain about Taiwan and the Taiwanese president, they never return my calls. But, you know, it, it, I figure they're just working on their response. <laughs> no, it, but you're right. It, for an ex-prime minister to go across seemed to be rather provocative because it could be implied that he was sent there as an envoy of the Australian government. It certainly sends a message to the Chinese about what at least the ruling party here thinks should happen. The whole history of Taiwan and Taiwanese sovereignty is one of those complicated issues that in an ideal and just world, Taiwan would be its own nation and separate from mainland China and separate from the Chinese government. And my instincts lay that way. But I do live in the real world and there's no point in antagonizing a massive trading partner and someone who we should also be allies with for the sake of making some kind of petty point. And it's important to work towards China allowing Taiwan to be recognized as a country. But I don't think you do it by sending through a belligerent ex-prime minister in open defiance of what the Chinese government might do. There are ways of advocating for it. And again, I would be in favour of that. Well, those historical antecedents do need to be taken into account between China and Taiwan. It's a complex historical situation and the Australian government should have vetoed this or they could have vetoed this whole process. I'm pretty sure that if Tony Abbott decided to go to Beijing to meet with the Chinese president to criticise Taiwanese policy, I'm sure that the Australian government would have stepped in and said, well, no, don't do that. That's not part of our diplomatic thinking at this stage. They obviously would have sanctioned this process of Tony Abbott going to Taiwan to criticise the Chinese government. But again, it brings up this whole issue of the Morrison government just isn't applying attention to detail. Like all of these things do matter within the overall relationship between Australia and China and Australia and Taiwan and between China and Taiwan. There should be a lot more attention to detail, but they just overlooked all of that. And I think that lack of attention to detail will be seen as a hallmark of the Morrison government. It's not a government that's very strong on policy. It's not a government that's very strong on understanding subtleties. And these are things that to be a, a good foreign affairs government, you need to be. It's even hard to see the strategy of what they're trying to do, except antagonize China to keep this dream of the Anglosphere, where America is welcomed back into the Commonwealth <laughs> as the senior partner. It's time to let it go, fellas. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, an up-and-coming wipeout for the Liberal Party in the West and in the North. The WA Liberal Party suffered the ultimate humiliation in the West Australian state election earlier this year. Political parties are usually thrown out of government, but the WA Liberal Party was also thrown out of opposition, reduced to just two seats in a chamber of 59. 
Now, you would think that in a state where the Federal Liberal Party needs to hold on to every single seat all around Australia at a very difficult up-and-coming federal election, they might try and tone down their language a little bit, offer a little bit of appeasement rather than going on the attack and creating division. The West Australia government, they want to renegotiate the current GST deal where they only receive 42 cents for every dollar it raises in GST revenue. As a comparison, New South Wales received 95 cents for every dollar it raises in GST revenue and it's been a sticking point for the West Australian government over the past 15 years. The same situation is developing in Queensland. Scott Morrison is trying to pick as many fights as possible with the Palaszczuk government in Queensland on border closures, on economic support, vaccination rollout. And the latest attacks relate to hospital fundings. State and territory governments are requesting more hospital funding for COVID support. And Morrison claims that they've already received more than enough and should be happy with what they're getting. Are these attacks on state governments by the federal government are they justified or is it just the usual process of state governments trying to get more funding from the Commonwealth Government? Obviously, partly a negotiating tactic. I think it's partly trying to sow division, which they've done relatively successfully and fairly unsuccessfully in Victoria. When I say relatively successfully, there's a minority of people who have decided that the Victorian government's policies towards COVID have been this horrible fascist travesty. We had those demonstrations that really achieved nothing more than keeping Victoria in lockdown. So Melbourne is now the most locked down city in the world, overtaking Buenos Aires. Yet Dan Andrews still holds a 73 or 74% approval rating. It's interesting. We've got Morrison sowing the seeds of division of state between state. We're seeing language here that we haven't seen since probably 1895. I think it was George Reed who said in the federal parliament, my father looked at Victorians in the way that you might look at a mangy dog and had no compunction in shooting one. Reed, of course, was from New South Wales. We're starting to see this again. This 120 years down the track where we are all Australians first and then members of our state second and there are a couple of exceptions to that whenever there's a state of origin match on New South Wales and Queensland you start to see a little bit of sporting competitions and occasionally in matters of trade where you might have an industry in Western Australia and an industry in South Australia that are competing for the same market but generally we should all be Australians first and when Australia Day rolls around in January and Anzac Day rolls around in April we'll see the hypocrisy again. Maybe we, we are all Australians except for the ones that live in Queensland and in Victoria and in Western Australia as well. So premiers will always make ambit claims against the Commonwealth government when they're reaching out for funding. And there is that old saying that you should never stand between a state premier and a bucket of money. But putting those issues aside, Morrison can probably get away with attacking the WA government in the way that he is at the moment. The Liberal Party holds 11 out of the 16 seats in WA. Only three of those are marginal seats, including Christian Porters. The rest are held by over 10%. So he's probably looking at the arithmetic there and saying, well, we're not going to lose that many seats in 
WA anyway, so we can attack them if we want. But even still, losing any seat is not a good thing for the Liberal Party at the next federal election. Queensland is probably the larger problem for the Liberal Party, where they hold 23 out of the 30 seats. There are at least five marginal seats, and there's another five or six seats which were artificially inflated through the 2019 election. So all of these seats in Queensland, to a lesser extent in Western Australia, they're at risk. So it doesn't make sense for why Scott Morrison would be attacking these states. The recent election in Western Australia, they finally finished counting the Legislative Council, the Upper House. And Labor has done an extraordinary thing in that it increased its majority in an upper house, which is very hard to do in the way they've set it up in the states. But Labor gained eight seats for 22. Liberals lost two. They only have seven seats. And the Nationals lost one. They only have three seats. So Labor has an outright majority. And it's not a terribly obvious coalition of the the other parties. The legalized cannabis, uh, the Greens and the Daylight Saving party with the Liberals and the Nationals may not work that well together. We'll see, but I don't think it makes any difference. This, I think, will have an effect. I think a lot of those safe seats in Western Australia won't be safe anymore, or they'll be less safe. They'll go from margins of 10% to margins of 6 If the swing is big enough, and this isn't unprecedented, though it is unusual, if the swing is big enough, they might lose more than just those marginal ones. Well, elections are always very unpredictable, but Western Australia and Queensland, they're very parochial states. And, and I guess you can only fully understand that if you either live there or come from those one of those two states. Political fury can be easily manufactured in those states against the federal government, especially in the case where Scott Morrison is considered to be the Prime Minister for New South Wales, and that's because he favours New South Wales pretty much at every opportunity at the expense of all the other states and territories, especially the Labor state governments. In my opinion, there's also a personal element to this. The new New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, he called Mark McGowan Gollum over the GST issues he was complaining about. And if we're talking about Lord of the Rings, maybe Perrottet and Morrison are a little bit like the Orcs. But this is also immature and so childish. And humiliating a political leader usually leads to retaliation in another way. The other factor we have to take into account is that McGowan in WA and Palaszczuk in Queensland, they are very secure in their political positions. And those two governments are very secure in their political positions. And they'll start becoming more ambitious for their federal counterparts. They're Labor governments, and they would prefer to work with a federal Labor government. It strengthens their hand at the national cabinet level in trying to achieve the agreements that favour their states. Juvenile divisions in states benefit no one. Uh, It will strengthen Anna Palaszczuk and Daniel Andrews as their supporters decide you don't touch, you know, leave our premier alone. I think, too, name-calling, unless it's really funny, gives you nothing. And if it's really funny, it gives you half a point. And calling him Gollum, what does that even mean? Dominic Perrottet looks more like Gollum if we're going to be brutal about this stuff. And I'm not into name calling, so... Well, the other factor there is that it doesn't happen within the corporate world. We don't hear the respective heads of BHP and Rio Tinto attacking each other in this sort of way. We don't hear the respective heads of Telstra and Optus or any other telephony company attacking each other. The political system plays these debates out in a different way. And for me, it is childish. It's immature. There needs to be a different way to resolve these differences. 
Yeah. It feeds into, and this might be part of it too, the, the disillusion people have with politics. If they're calling each other childish names, people just aren't interested. Now, of course, there's an advantage to not having people interested. It means you can get away with more because people aren't watching. And we've seen this. The number of ministers, and we saw this in our last podcast, who really should have resigned and be under investigation. But the public outrage just hasn't been enough yet. And I know all our listeners are outraged, and uh, but there's a lot of people who don't listen to our podcast or any other news in any way. And when they do, they just think, oh, it's the same old, same old, I'll never change it. This attitude works in favour of name-calling and it gets you a half-headline. People roll their eyes, move on, and then you can go along and cut services and do all the nasty stuff that they want to do. So, yeah, I think there's three or four agendas running here. Generally, tax policy and any discussions about GST are considered a little bit on the boring side. I tend to get a little bit excited about these sort of things. But GST revenue is divided according to the fancy name of horizontal fiscal equalisation. And that looks at each state's ability to raise revenues and addresses disadvantages in the smaller states. West Australia currently receives 42 cents for every dollar raised in GST. And this lower amount is directly linked to the mining boom over the past decade. New South Wales receives 95 cents, Tasmania $1.96, and the Northern Territory $4.79. And that's partially the idea behind a Commonwealth. You share the revenue amongst the weaker states, and that makes the Commonwealth stronger. But maybe receiving 42 cents for every GST dollar that they raise in Western Australia is probably a little bit too low. And and WA is definitely not happy with the deal that they've got. Hospitals is a little bit more convoluted. The eight state and territory governments, they've asked for additional COVID-related funding, and that's to cope with the additional COVID cases that they are expecting to receive once the restrictions are lifted quite soon. And that funding goes through a complex formula. But the upshot is that they received an additional $8 billion that was initially provided at the beginning of COVID. And their current request is to extend this funding up until the end of 2023. And that to me sounds quite a reasonable proposition. But just for a bit of context, $21 billion of JobKeeper support was paid to companies which didn't need that support. They actually increased their bottom line. They increased their profits during the time of the pandemic, and they got to keep $21 billion of JobKeeper support. And here we have Morrison squibbling over $8 billion of essential support to hospitals who will need to treat an increasing number of patients when New South Wales and Victoria open up again. The money is there. But Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, they just don't want to pay for these essentials. This doesn't make any sense at all, except for the fact that Morrison and Frydenberg want to cause political division and seek a benefit from this division. I've said it before, they're arguers. They're poor debaters. They're not policy people. They want the power. They don't want the responsibility. They want the benefits. They don't want the work that the benefits should be a a reward of. They're developmentally delayed in maturity. They're 19-year-olds, emotionally speaking, trying to do the work of adults, and they're failing. And it shows Josh Frydenberg is in electoral trouble because he tried running down the Victorian government to Victorians. Now, you may not agree with the government, and of course anyone can criticise any government fairly, but most Victorians didn't agree with him, put it that way. And he is now in trouble. There's a very strong independent 
running in his very safe seat and iconic seat of Kuyong, which he has a very good chance of losing. There's a time for name-calling and a, quote, funny debate, and there's a time to step up and do the work and think very carefully and come up with strategies and tactics and policies that benefit all of Australia. And that's what we're not seeing, and I don't think we ever will under the current federal government. Now, there's still a bit of simmering talk about a federal election to be held in November, but this has died down ever since the speculation was heated quite a few weeks ago. I still can't see this happening. The latest news polls have shown that there's no change in the two-party preferred voting. That's still 53% to Labor and 47% to the LNP. There's a new New South Wales Premier as well, and that seemed to be the real reason for Morrison wanting to go early to an election. That's before Berejiklian was investigated by the New South Wales ICAC. That real reason has disappeared. I still think that he'd be better waiting until the pandemic has become more under control. The vaccinations have reached their 90%, 95% target. We never know. There's always something that could arrive over the horizon that precipitates a November election. I still think that it's very unlikely, but you just never know. Some people thought that it was possible that it would be it would take courage to have a November election, and which is something that the Prime Minister lacks. I really don't like being harsh, but the evidence is overwhelming. A November election, when Victoria is in dire straits, New South Wales is in fairly dire straits, Queensland is hugely mistrusting and staving off a surge in Delta cases in Queensland. He's got to win at least two of those states. And at this point, he won't win New South Wales and he won't, he definitely won't win Victoria and Queensland, he may not win. So I, I think that while it still may happen, I think we're still looking at February or probably March or even April. It's got to be by May 22nd. I don't think he'll let it stretch out that long because the longer you stretch it out, the more that can go wrong. But I think he'll be looking at signs of improvement, which summer will improve COVID a little bit. And that's the other thing too. He had tied himself to the so-called success of Gladys Berejiklian. Now, he can't even do that because she stepped down because of an investigation into corruption. So all he could do there was undermine the ICAC the investigating body, which is never a good look for a prime minister. I don't know that he'd ever dare try and undermine the Australian Federal Police. So to do that to ICAC wasn't, I don't think, the smart move, but it means that he can't rely on that government support from a fairly popular leader. He's now got a leader who we don't know if he's popular or not because he hasn't been in long enough. But New South Wales has suddenly become a lot less sure for him. I think that's fair to say. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.